Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that is brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, the second continuation. I'm going to warn you in advance, I'm going to be a little extra preachy today. Yeah, that's what happens when you teach the gospel counts. Um, so as we reopen Matthew chapter 3, we left off with verse 7. Please open your Bibles there. The mention of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that came to John ostensibly to be immersed by him, but in reality, it was to investigate this strange man who seemed to have developed this large following nearly overnight. So let's reread, beginning with verse 8. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start it in verse 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1226. 1226. If you have really turned from your sins to God, produce fruit that will prove it. Don't suppose you can comfort yourselves by saying, well, Avraham is our father. For I tell you that God can raise up for Avraham sons from these stones. Already the axe is at the root of the trees, ready to strike. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown in the fire. It's true that I am immersing you in water so that you might turn from sin to God, but the one coming after me, he's more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to even carry sandals. And he will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and in fire. He has with him his winnowing fork. He will clear out his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but burning up the straw for unquenchable fire. Then Yeshua came from the Galil, the Galilee, to the Jordan to be immersed by Yochanan, John. But Yochanan tried to stop him. You are coming to me? I ought to be immersed by you. However, Yeshua answered him, Let it be this way now, because we should do everything righteousness requires. Then Yochanan let him. And as soon as Yeshua had been immersed, he came up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God coming, coming down upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. You see, John immediately discerned that the Sadducees and the Pharisees who came to him, they weren't coming with a trueness of heart. He knew this, not because he had some divine ability to read minds or know hearts, but because he well knew what the Sadducee and Pharisee leadership believed, what they taught, and that it was fundamentally in conflict with Holy Scripture, and therefore in conflict with what John's baptism was all about. Now, the Sadducees were Jewish aristocrats who ruled over the temple. Not since the Maccabees had succeeded in taking the temple back from the pagan Gentile Antiochus Epiphanes and his army, which was about 190 years earlier than John the Baptist's time, not since then was the temple leadership structured or occupied by the Levite clans that God had ordained in the Torah. Rather, unauthorized priests, not of the correct priestly lineage, were put in charge. And then later, those who became even the high priests literally purchased their way into their prestigious and powerful positions. Now, to understand what a mockery of the temple system that these Sadducees were, one must try to piece together what it is that they believed and what they taught. To begin with, 
The Sadducees were complicit with Rome in the handling of the Jewish people since the only thing that actually mattered to them was holding on to their wealth and their authority. Now, notice carefully what they denied. They did not believe in resurrection. And they refused acceptance of the existence of any kind of an afterlife. They believed not in human free will, or even really God's will per se, but rather in a thoroughly Greco-Roman concept of fate. These doctrines would set them on a path of irreconcilable differences with the teachings of the man for whom John was divinely sent to prepare, to prepare the way, Messiah Yeshua. Now, interestingly, the Sadducees also denied the authority of Oral Torah, also known as Jewish Law, Tradition, and Halakha. Now, sometimes it can be difficult to trace just why a religious sect believes what they do and denies what they do. But in the case of the Sadducees, denying the authority of Halakha, there's a rather obvious reason. It was a result of their political and their religious rivalry with the Pharisees. Halakha, tradition, that was the center and focus of the teachings of the political slash religious sect of the Pharisees. Now recall we have discussed on a couple of occasions that there was a well-ordered uh, dual religious system in place in the first century AD, the temple system and the synagogue system. The common Jews and many of the wealthier Jews were attached to one synagogue or another and that was where they obtained their moral, ethical, uh, and religious instruction. Uh, much of their social life revolved around the synagogue. The temple system, well that was where the common people went when they needed legal justice. The Sanhedrin being the highest court. And it's also where they followed God's laws concerning sacrificing, tithing, observing the ordinance of the appointed times, including the biblical feasts, things like that. The temple was also where, according to the Torah, where the people were to go for direct Torah instruction from the Levite priests, but that practice had long ago died out. Now, I want to point out Matthew's acute awareness of this dual religious system and the position and the place that each of these systems inhabited within Jewish religious and social life, as well as, the, as, well as this authority structure of, um, of both. It might surprise you to know that even though Jewish scholars give no credence to the New Testament's claim of Yeshua of Nazareth as being the Messiah, they do readily acknowledge that the most complete and nearly the only record of the history, practices, and beliefs of first century Judaism is found in this same New Testament that's in our Bibles. Paul's letters and the book of Matthew more than any others seem, from my personal interaction with Jewish biblical scholars, they seem to be the ones they consult the most. And I think for good reason. Paul was a highly trained and learned Pharisee, a prolific writer, who dealt with both Holy Land and Diaspora Jews, and Matthew was clearly a well-educated Jewish believer who had been deeply immersed into the Jewish culture of the first century, and so he understood many of their cultural nuances. Now John the Baptist knew up front that what the Sadducees believed and much of what the Pharisees believed were not compatible with what 
he believed. And with what he strongly felt, he must teach in advance of and alongside the ministry of the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. He knew that nothing he said was going to change their minds. And in fact, they didn't honestly come to him as seekers of truth, but rather they came to intimidate the people. The people who were flocking to John, and then, of course, to try to find fault with him. See, it's been a common Christian teaching for centuries that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are depicted in chapter 3 as representative of all Israel. And the sincere people coming to John to be baptized, well, they're representative then of the church. Later in verse 9, when John says that mere descent from Abraham is not sufficient to prove one's distance from sin, he adds, God could raise up sons of Abraham from stones. So it has been an equally common teaching that these stones are therefore representative of Gentiles. The early church father Jerome, from the 4th century, used as his belief that the stones in this passage meant Gentiles by pointing to a passage in Ezekiel 36. In his commentary on Matthew, Jerome says this, listen carefully, God is able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. He calls the Gentiles stones because of their hard hearts. We read in Ezekiel, I will revive their stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh. Yet, when we go to Ezekiel 36, which Jerome used to try to validate his point, we find that it was pertaining directly to Israel, whose people were to be gathered out of all the nations, sent back into their ancestral land. See, this habit of cherry-picking verses out of context and applying them willy-nilly to try to confirm or create a desired doctrine has been something of a plague within our Christian institutions. Which, as did the Sadducees and Pharisees, lead the people into many false doctrines that blinded them to the truth. Now, by no means was verse 9 referring to Gentiles, but rather the reference to the stones was simply an expression meant to indicate that although to be born to a Jewish mother was sufficient enough for one to be considered part of the covenant people of God, the Hebrews, and therefore to be considered a son of Abraham, it was the faith of Abraham that had to be appropriated, not merely his bloodline. Now, fellow believers, it's important that we realize that there is biblical truth and there is not biblical truth. And there's very little in between. All too often, Christians fold <laughs> when confronting a fellow believer who plainly misunderstands some of the most basic biblical truths. Or they fold when facing the sharp rebuttal of a person of another religion. In the 21st century, that other religion is almost always Islam. We shy away because, we claim, hey, we value peace and harmony over disagreement. While it's not that we should all necessarily be as bold or as lacking in tact as John the Baptist, or Paul for that matter, by calling people snakes or stupid, 
nor should we be unyieldingly rigid on biblical and spiritual matters that are at times challenging, highly nuanced, maybe not so cut and dried, you know, this attitude of my way or the highway. We must also not compromise on the weightier matters of critical importance, such as the enduring relevance of God's laws and commands and the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice on the cross that is above the central figure and doctrines of all other faiths. Many believers are reluctant to defend their faith because outside of a handful of bumper sticker sayings they learned in church, they realize they can't make a reasoned argument for their faith. Or they know that the outward evidence of their faith, the fruit, is lacking. And they just don't want to be embarrassed by someone who points it out. So often we just hurriedly disengage by telling the non-believer or the deceived believer that we respect their faith and we move on relieved. I don't think we should do that. Rather, we can make it clear we respect the person. We respect them. But to tell them we respect their questionable faith? Well, that's nothing we're going to find in the Apostle, John the Baptist, or even Christ saying, because to do so validates in that deceived person what may be a very wrong faith that only leads them further into darkness instead of into light. So what do we do? Well, we all instinctively know when someone is coming to us for an honest inquiry, hopefully as a teachable person, Versus when they're just coming to trap us or just wanting to engage in a dispute. Honest inquiry deserves an honest and a well-mannered answer. But a person who comes only to be divisive or means to ensnare us or wants to display their anger deserves only to be given a polite goodbye. At the same time, we have to equip ourselves with sound biblical truth, earned by serious Bible study, so that we can give a sincere person an honest and a reasoned answer. And we have to also know God's Word well enough to discern when we should take more of our time to explain versus when we should just walk away. John the Baptist was doing exactly that when he called out those Sadducees and Pharisees who came to him with completely insincere motives. Now in verse 10, John tells the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what happens to the insincere? like them. He uses the metaphor of an axe chopping down a tree that doesn't produce good fruit and then destroying that felled tree with fire. The tree represents a person who is a member of God's covenant community, an Israelite. The fruit is the product of that person's life his actions and his deeds. It is what is seen outwardly that is it's like a window into that person's character. It reveals what that person dedicates his or her life to. So bad fruit comes from bad character. Good fruit 
comes from good character. Not that hard. But in the context of religious Judaism, bad fruit also means evil deeds or lack of good deeds. And good fruit means doing righteous deeds and works. Now I stress, everything we've been reading so far in this chapter has John applying it to his fellow Jews. And in this particular instance, it is especially aimed at Jewish religious leadership because he sees them as having bankrupt character that is producing only wicked fruit. It is true that later on in Matthew's Gospel, Yeshua makes use of the same statement that John used. But more likely the reason for using it is that it seems to have been a rather standard Jewish expression of that era. Yeshua says this in Matthew 7, 16-20, You will recognize them, how? By their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes? How about figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. A poor tree, good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. So, you will recognize them by their fruit. The Christians of all branches have allegorized these words of Christ to make all kinds of applications. But in this particular quote, at this particular time, Christ is referring to one thing only. I want you to listen to the verse that just precedes one verse before what I just read to you. Beware of the false prophets. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Da 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 da. Goes right into what I just told you. So, who was Yeshua referring to? False prophets. That's what this entire statement happened to be about at this time. This use of the term false prophets meant false teachers of God's Word. See, by the first century, it's not that the term prophet had lost its meaning as one who tells us of future events or consequences. In the New Testament, unless the term prophet is referring to one of the prophets of old, nearly always it means a person who teaches the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Bible. So we have two important takeaways from this. First, biblical context must always be preserved. Always. John was not making some vastly generalized statement about a tree not producing good fruit being cut down. He was applying it at that time only to the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to investigate him and to bother the people who came for John's baptism. And Christ at that particular time, what I just read you, was not making some vastly generalized, generalized statement about a, pre, about a tree not producing good fruit being cut down. In this case, he was applying it only to those who claimed they were teaching or preaching God's Word, but in fact they were not. And second, in both uses of this Jewish metaphor, the result of bearing no fruit or bad fruit is the same eternal destruction. 
I've said to you before, teachers of God's Word, we bear huge consequences. Huge. For being not in error, but for intentionally twisting God's Word. For teaching God's people doctrines instead of His Word. Those who learn Torah with me will recall that in the Bible God uses fire mostly for two purposes. It's either for purification or it's for destruction. Purification is to burn off the dross of sin and imperfection, but it leaves the core element not only intact, but pure. Destruction is to take a wicked thing and end its existence. From John's message, the leaders and the teachers of the temple and the synagogue, that's who's being warned. And from Christ's message, the teachers of God's Word are again being warned, only this time the warning is being more broadly applied to all Israelites who would claim they are teaching the biblical truth or are bringing a word from the Lord to others. But in fact, they're not. And instead, they're twisting the truth in order to deceive. In verse 11, Messiah is more formally introduced by John. His statement in the complete Jewish Bible is, in verse 11 of chapter 3, It is true that I am immersing you in water so that you might turn from sin to God. But the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy even to carry his sandals, and he will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh and in fire. Its more familiar form is found in the King James Version. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. These two translations express exactly the same thing, so there's no conflict. However, the King James Version, I think, is the better one. To help us deal with what it means to be baptized in water unto repentance. Repentance meaning, as the complete Jewish Bible properly explains, to turn from sins to God. To turn from sins to God. The theological approach is to say either that it means the water itself actually brings about our repentance, or that it summons repentance within us. However, there is another alternative meaning that far more fits with the Bible in general. It is that immersion in water, baptism, expresses our already repentant condition. This position makes repentance a sort of joint venture, if you would, between the worshiper and God, whereby an act of God's will places the needed faith within us in order that we can accept His truth, thereby enabling a response of the human will to sincerely repent. So, here's the thing. Until God moves upon a human, the human does not move. Therefore, even in our repentance, God gets all the glory. Now, while John calls for an immersion in water that amounts to a public profession of the worshiper's act of repentance, he says that the one who's coming, Yeshua, will immerse this same repentant worshiper in the Holy Spirit and with fire.
Now, immersion in water is only ritually symbolic in one sense, but in another, it is done as an obedience to the commandment of God. However, immersion into the Holy Spirit actually changes the very nature of that same person. The change is expressed by the words that follow Holy Spirit, which is, with fire. Remember what we just discussed. Fire is used for purification, or it's used for destruction. The fire of the Holy Spirit brings divine purification to the worshiper, stripping that person of the uncleanness caused by a lifetime of sinning and making him or her acceptable to God now, rather than that person remaining un unclean, remaining unacceptable to God, thus suffering the divine destruction that will come to those who refuse the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me simplify that. Acceptance of our Savior allows us to be immersed into the Holy Spirit of God, which brings on a completely changed nature within us. Those who refuse it, Jew or Gentile, will face the consequence of complete eternal destruction. Now, I want us to be very careful as we encounter phrases such as immersion into the Holy Spirit, immersed in fire, and so on. The writers of the Bible, under God's inspiration, used metaphors and illustrations and cultural situations of the physical world that they were familiar with in order to help describe and explain the otherwise inexplicable. But the physical is not the spiritual. So we have to not carry these illustrations and comparisons out too far. They're not precise. One of the main obstacles for believers in the 21st century is to grasp what these metaphors and illustrations and cultural situations used to impart spiritual understanding meant to these first century Jews because it is the meaning within that context that is the most correct. Verse 12, well that verse presents the contrast to the last words of verse 11. In verse 11, John speaks of the repentant worshiper being immersed into the Holy Spirit and in the fire of purification. That is, to use the vernacular of today, it's what happens to the saved. Verse 12, well that now speaks of the alternative. What happens to the unsaved? Now notice how this illustration shows what happens when this same wheat from the same harvest is winnowed. Winnowing is fundamentally a process of separation. In the winnowing process, a winnowing fork is used to toss the harvest up into the air, and the breeze carries away the lighter part, but the heavier part just falls down to the threshing floor. The unusable, pardon me, the usable wheat kernels are in this way separated from the waste part. The grain is saved and it's put away, but the unusable chaff is gathered up and it's burned up. The winnowing is another metaphor to illustrate the consequence of those who have refused the baptism offered by Christ. A baptism, John says, he can't offer. Now notice thus far how the saved and the unsaved will both experience fire. The believer's experience with fire 
will not only not hurt us or harm us, it will purify us. The non-believer's experience with fire destroys them. Now notice something else, backing up just a little bit to the opening words of verse 10. Those words are, already the axe is at the root of the trees. And then the beginning of verse 12 is, he has with him his winnowing fork. Now what would these two verses say to you if you were a Jew living in the first century? To me, they'd say imminent. I mean like any day, right now. But those words would certainly not say to me, oh, sometime in the distant future. See, John and then Jesus, they were not the ones that raised the alert of the apocalypse. They were living in the times of the expectation of it. And their presence and their message also just seemed to validate it. The belief that the Jews were already in the end times was well established. And it was further believed with each passing year of Roman occupation and each new atrocity perpetrated upon the Jews. In a sudden turn of events, verse 13, well, that changes the entire tone of what has been happening when Jesus comes to John to be immersed. Notice that we are finally, definitively told where the baptisms of John had been taking place at the Jordan River. I'm going to take a brief detour here to ask a question. Why was John baptizing in the Jordan River and not at one of the many mikvehs scattered all around Jerusalem? More than likely, it's because the temple authorities would never have allowed it. Since whatever witness to purification immersion was required, it would have been it would have had to be under temple rules and supervision. We've already established John wasn't a welcome figure to the temple or to the synagogue. So he had to baptize someplace where they held little or no control. The solution was the Jordan River. Now, interestingly, the place, the very place where John was regularly baptized and living at that time may have actually been found. Dr. James Tabor, profession of, professor rather of ancient Judaism at the University of, of North Carolina, and Shimon Gibson, head of the archaeology department at the University of the Holy Land, feel that the evidence is strong that this place has been discovered and right where one might expect it, east of Jerusalem at the Jordan River. It includes a cave where John lived because we are told that he was in the desert. He needed to keep a certain distance from the religious authorities of the Jews, and indeed this place would have provided that distance. Well, when Yeshua arrives at the Jordan River, John, of course, just balks at the suggestion that he should baptize this man because he's already said he's not fit to carry the sandals of the one who is coming, Yeshua, and yet Yeshua insists. Now, <laughs> the controversy. And, and the doctrinal debates that surround Yeshua's immersion by John is pretty hard to overstate. I have personally found nine different explanations for Jesus seeking this baptism. And I know there are more. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with the conclusion of any of them. So here comes ten. It's my opinion that what leads to these many, sometimes I think pretty strange, doctrines about Yeshua's baptism is because of trying to vault him 
from his first century Jewish culture and environment into our present age, with Christ leaving behind his Jewishness and becoming a Christian. When we deliberate about this event, that is in any case not without its mystery, and take into account the very Jewish nature of it, some aspects of it then become more clear. For one thing, this was hardly Yeshua's first immersion. He would have been immersed hundreds of times by this point in his life, just as any observant Jew would have been, especially a Jew that lived in the Holy Land as opposed to one who lived way out in the far-flung Jewish diaspora. Now, I spoke to you before about what exactly John's baptism was meant to do, and how even among the three synoptic gospel accounts, it's not entirely clear. I think then when we look at them as a whole from the long view, and not the microscopic, the meaning becomes, uh, rather, comes into a better focus. It's all about repenting from sins. And I think this because typically immersion, baptism, had to do with being purified from some sort of ritual uncleanness. It was as a required preparation just to enter the temple grounds. Jews well understood that water did not atone for sins. Sin required the spilling of innocent blood at the temple altar. So John's immersion had less had to had to do less with purification, actual purification, and more with declaration. And the declaration was that the candidate had decided in his or her heart they were a sinner. They were sorry for attending God, for offending God. And they no longer wanted to sin, but rather they wanted to turn back to God and to His ways. No doubt the undercurrent of the times in which the Jews thought they were living in the end of days drove many to search themselves inwardly and question whether they were indeed right with God or not. And when we look around at the world we live in today, doesn't it send up some red, red flags indicating maybe we ought to be doing the same, perhaps with the same motive? But then the question becomes, <laughs> you ready for this one? If Christ was born sinless, you already know where I'm going, and he had remained sinless all of his life, then why his insistence that he be baptized for repentance of sins? Ooh. His answer to that question only helps us a little bit. <laughs> In verse 15, John, uh, Yeshua tells John, it is, it is to do everything righteousness requires. Okay, what does that mean? Again, there is very little scholarly consensus on it. So I'd like to offer us a solution. Virtually every suggestion proposed by Bible scholars to interpret this passage that I've ever seen assumes that the righteousness being spoken of is human righteousness. Our righteousness. Rather, I think this is speaking of God's righteousness. Instead of, instead of spending a great deal of time explaining this, because it needs a lot of explanation, on your own, Please read the Torah class lesson 21 on the book of Exodus. It goes into great detail on it. 
There, I think for today, I'm just going to give you the bottom line to all this, but it's not enough. Please go to that lesson and read it. You see, it is that God's righteousness, His righteousness, is all about salvation. God's righteousness is the saving righteousness. God's righteousness is His will to bring about righteousness in humans according to His plan. And His plan involved a Messiah that was as human as He was divine. So in Yeshua's eyes, He journeyed this long distance down the Jordan Valley from His home in the Galilee to obey His heavenly Father and to begin to carry out His part of the Father's plan of salvation. In this way, Yeshua achieved the righteousness of God. So much so that at the same moment, we're told, the Holy Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. Now, this does not mean that a supernatural dove lighted upon Christ. Rather, this describes a spiritual happening in physical terms. And physical terms and illustrations, that's all we have to use. So I want to say this another way. God's righteousness is what Yeshua was referring to, not human righteousness. But of course, humans, we benefit from it. God's righteousness is His will to save, to save us. Yeshua is the focus. He is the fulfillment of God's plan to save us. And thus, Yeshua is God. He too carries within Him God's righteousness. The Holy Spirit coming down from heaven is meant as visible proof of this. Since Yeshua was also a readily identifiable human being who grew up in Nazareth of the Galilee. And then, a voice from heaven. Clearly it was the Father's voice since Christ, at that moment, was chest deep in the Jordan River, said that this man was the Father's Son whom he loves and in whom he is well pleased. I want to back up a little bit. One of the things that we see happening here when Jesus comes to John is that we also have a contrast developed between John and Jesus. Jesus is supreme. He's above John. Now this might sound simple and obvious to us today, but there is no doubt that this was not necessarily how John's followers took it. One such example takes place in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Now, I just want you to recall that by this time John was dead. In Acts 19, 1 through 7, while Apollos was in Corinth, Shaul Paul completed his travels through the inland country and he arrived at Ephesus where he found a few disciples. He asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came to trust? No, they said to him. We've never heard that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. In that case, he said, into what were you immersed? They said, into the immersion of John. And Paul said, well, John practiced an immersion in connection with turning from sin to God. But he told the people to put their trust in the one who would come after him. That is, Yeshua. So on hearing this, 
they were immersed into the name of the Lord Yeshua. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and so they began speaking in tongues and prophesying and all. There were about 12 of these men. Now, so what we find here, I mean, this, this is one of these this is seven verses you could talk about for two weeks, but what we find here is that there were independent groups of John's disciples who had developed their own sense of what baptism meant. Remember what we were talking about? This is the book of Acts. This is Paul's day. This is long after John and Jesus were both dead. They developed their own sense of what baptism meant, what should happen afterwards. And they still maintain something that could only be called John's baptism. However, John never claimed that his baptism brought salvation. Only that it was for repentance of sins. Repentance is not the same thing as trust in Christ. Repentance is a necessary step towards salvation, but it's not salvation. Good New Testament scholars note kind of a particular tension that grew between John and Jesus and between their separate groups of disciples. We learn of the ambiguity in John's own mind about Yeshua and another part of the book of Matthew. In Matthew 11, verses 1 through 3, we read, After Yeshua had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns nearby. Now, meanwhile, John, the Baptist, who had been put in prison, heard what the Messiah had been doing. So, he sent a message to him through his disciples, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? Some time after John's immersion of Yeshua, and after Yeshua had chosen his twelve disciples, and he was well into his earthly ministry, John really wasn't certain about how, who Yeshua was. Therefore, no doubt John's own flock of disciples, well, they weren't certain either. And the story in Acts 19 says that as much as 30 years after Yeshua's death and resurrection, there remained groups of John's disciples who still didn't understand who Yeshua was, and what it meant to receive the Holy Spirit in His name. Even so, were these disciples of John saved? No, they weren't. Because it is the receiving of the Holy Spirit that is both reward and proof of our salvation. We'll begin Matthew chapter 4 next time.